The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to be walking through the text you just heard Mike uh, read as we continue to study this incredible epistle the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. So I was thinking about just how to introduce uh, this section on tongues and the proper use and purpose of tongues. I wanted to think big picture about what's going on in the world, what's going on in history. It's good for us to understand this. History has a purpose. It may be hard to believe, but we're right on schedule. Every single day, believers could say, have said, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Unlike the dark, dreary message of the book of Ecclesiastes, where everything is vanity of vanities and dust in the wind, chasing after the wind, Lord, we know that because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, our labors in the Lord are not in vain. The building of the church of Jesus Christ is on schedule, it's continuing, and every day has a purpose. As it says so plainly in Ephesians 1, that God works all things after the counsel of his will. I was talking to somebody who was struggling with some discouragement in life, and, and I said, when we get to heaven, are we going to find out that God was on it? You know what I mean by on it. He, was, he, he could say, I'm on it. I'm on this. Are we going to find out that he was actually on it? That he was more on it than we thought he was? The same as we thought, or actually less than we ever thought he was? What do you think? God is so on it we can't even calculate. And so I, I use this analogy of being on a commercial you know, jet and you're flying and you're going through some turbulence and there's an electrical storm 30 miles off the left-hand side and all that and you're sweating in your seat and tempted to unbuckle and pound on the cockpit door. Don't do that. And if that's true of the pilot who's flown through some turbulence before, seen electrical storms up in the heavens before, knows what he's doing. How much more is that true of God every day of history? So let us trust in him. Let's realize that God has a plan. And what is his plan? I'll tell you what his plan is, that he be glorified. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the heavens. I'll be exalted on the earth. And how will he be glorified? The central way that God will glorify his name is by the building of the church of Jesus Christ every single day of redemptive history until all of the elect chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world are saved, glorified in resurrection bodies. The new heaven, new earth has come. The new Jerusalem has come. God will be radiantly glorified in that day and nothing is going to stop that. Isn't that encouraging? And so as we look at 1 Corinthians 14, we need to understand that, this in that context. God has broken into history. Like the unbeliever that comes from the outside into that worship service and at some point his heart is cut open spiritually and he falls down and, say, and says, God is in this place. God is among you. Well, that's the message of the incarnation. That's the message of Emmanuel. God is with us. As Romans 8 said, if God is for us, who can be against us? God has broken into history. 
He did it in Christ, and he's done it by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, by the advancing of the church of Jesus Christ. And as the gospel advances in every generation, nothing can stop it. As a, a display of the power of the third person of the Trinity, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and the gospel continues to advance, and Satan cannot stop it. We need to see this advance in a, in a variety of ways. Certainly it's a body growing to full maturity. We get that image in Ephesians 4. Uh, it's an army taking hostile territory from a wicked, evil king, King Satan. And we are taking ground. The kingdom of heaven is advancing and nothing can stop it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He also used that analogy of a strong man fully armed guarding his possessions and no one can take them. But someone more powerful and he overpowers him, strips him of his armor and plunders him. That's Jesus overtaking Satan's kingdom and stealing us from him. And that's what's going on. So we have this this sense also, uh, as I've said and said last week, of a building project where there's this holy temple rising. You become more and more ornate and glorious, a temple in which God lives or dwells by his spirit. So you have all these images. So it's hard to put them all together, but a building project on a battlefield, kind of like. You get that in Nehemiah, remember, where they have the sword and the trowel. They're building the wall and they got the sword in the other hand because they're enemies. Fighting every day. So we have that same image here. And what is the most powerful weapon in the hands of Almighty God for the advancing kingdom of Jesus Christ? Is it not a healthy local church? All over the world there are local churches assembled together around the gospel, around the word of God, by the power of the spirit, for the purpose of building up the saints to maturity and spreading the gospel in that locale. All over the world this is going on. It's going on right now. All over the world. As the sun makes its circuit around the, around the world, people are assembling and gathering in the name of Jesus Christ and are unfolding God's word. And all over the world, this is happening. And that includes us. But the church has to be healthy. The church has to be orderly. And that's the point that Paul is addressing here as he gets to this dysfunctional, messed up church in Corinth so many centuries ago and writes this incredible epistle. I was only asking for trouble when I decided to go verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. But we need the trouble. We need to walk through the issues because we face the same issues. There's no, no real difference. Same struggles. And so he's addressing. Now here he's specifically addressing the use of the gift of tongues. And as we said last week, the purpose of spiritual gifts, what are spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are special abilities given severally or individually to members of of the body of Christ. Each one gets a spiritual gift package. And the purpose of your spiritual gift package is the same as every other Christian spiritual gift package is for the edification or building up of the body of Christ, building up of the church church of Jesus Christ. So we have this edification language we looked at last week. Look at verse 3. The person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. Again, look at verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. Again, verse 12, so it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up or edify the church. Edify. 
And then verse 17, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. So, and many other such verses. So the spiritual gifts are all given for that purpose. For the edification or building up to completion of the church of Jesus Christ. Edification. Now what was going on in Corinth? What was the problem in Corinth? Well, the problem in Corinth was selfishness, pride, man-centeredness. Uh, spiritual gifts were for many a platform uh, for ego. And then others who didn't have those special upfront gifts like tongues and prophecy were uh, part of the, uh, a clique, uh, like a fan club, you could imagine. I follow Paul, I follow Paul as they're clustering around human leaders, putting way too much emphasis on the human side and not enough on what Christ is doing to build up. So the result also uh, with paganism, as I've mentioned before, there was a, a sense of a connection with the divine that happened. So remember, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They believe in gods and goddesses. And priests and priestesses could connect with the divine and uh, be taken over even, like a body snatcher kind of thing. And they would become just incoherent, crazy babbler types and just go crazy spiritually. And that was amazing. And that was, that was the, the, the descending of supernatural into the natural in paganism. And so it was a mindless chaos that was happening for those. Then when the gospel came and speaking in tongues came in, that gift got sadly hijacked for that kind of a purpose in the church at Corinth. And so the Corinthian church was chaotic and disorderly on Sunday morning. We've already seen this earlier with the Lord's Supper. Remember uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says in verse 20 and 21, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry. Look at this. Another gets drunk. They were getting drunk on Lord's Supper wine. That's bad. You see, we need to be told that is a bad thing. That's not what they should have been doing. So there was somewhat of a gluttony with Lord's Supper bread, and there was drunkenness with Lord's Supper. They were disorderly. They were chaotic. So it was with their corporate worship, great disorder. And so Paul has to rein in tongues and command them to speak one at a time. He's going to do the same thing with the gift of prophecy, God willing, as you'll see next time that I preach. Uh, overall effect in verse 40 1 Corinthians 14, 40, all things should be done decently and in good order. There's just an orderliness to God. He's a very orderly being, very logical and orderly. God is a God of order, not of chaos. Look at verse 33 again in this same chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So there's two clear assertions at what Paul is getting after. Orderliness peacefulness, not chaos. Now last week we made the point that for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ, what God has ordained is the clear ministry of the word of God. It is a battle for the mind. It's a battle for the heart through the mind. And so fundamentally we rest on the, on the perfection of the word of God. The Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.15 says, is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then the next verse says, 
Now that you've been made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, now what? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. That's edification language. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's sanctification language, service language. So I really believe 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 just shows the, the centrality of the word of God for every aspect of salvation. It all comes down to the perfection of God's word. So our souls, our sinful souls, are justified by a simple, clear hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So that's how you are initially justified, forgiven of all your sins, made right in the sight of God by hearing the message with faith. Well, as it turns out, you're also sanctified the same way. By a continual hearing of the Word of God, you make progress in sanctification. You are edified through the clear ministry of the Word of God. And so what what we talked about last week is that tongues, untranslated, was not edifying anyone. Prophecy was superior to tongues because the people could understand what was being said. And the clear ministry of the Word of God changes our minds and our hearts and our bodies follow. That's how salvation works, by the ministry of the Word of God. And so he's calling for them to grow up. He's calling for them to be mature. Look at verse 20. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. He wants them to grow up as a congregation. They're acting like spoiled little children. I mean, I wonder what it would have been like to go back and see your average worship service, you know, before they got 1 Corinthians. I picture a kindergarten class. I don't know how many people. I don't know how many are, are what the, the ratio is. Well, let's say 30. Let's put 30 in the class. The teacher says, unwisely, class, I'm going to have to step out for a few minutes. So I want you all to sit in your seats And I want you to get out your coloring books in color, and I'll be back in a while. Look, what do you think is going to happen? Teacher comes back, let's, let's like roll it out to absurdity, in half an hour. There's been no adult in the room in half an hour. What do you think that looks like? Well, are you saying, Pastor, that that's what Sunday morning worship was like in Corinth? Maybe not that bad, but it was just childishly chaotic. So grow up. Understand what the spiritual gifts are for. Now, he doesn't want them to grow up in evil. He doesn't want them to be super experienced in evil. Sadly, they were. They were very experienced in sexual immorality and lawsuits against others and factions and divisions. They were experienced in evil. But immature when it came to righteousness and holiness. He wants exactly the opposite. I would rather you be naive and innocent when it comes to evil. But I would like you to be mature when it comes to righteousness. All right, so secondly, I'm going to outline the purpose of tongues is a sign for unbelievers. A sign for unbelievers. That's why God gave tongues. A sign. Look at verse 21, 22. In the law it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. So here he gives the purpose for tongues. Now let me just stop and, and say, as I did last week, what do we mean by tongues? Tongues is just an archaic, somewhat archaic English. We still use it a little bit, but for languages. That's what it means, languages. Um, and so 
It's not Babel, that's not what we're discussing, but actually formal, organized, orderly languages that are spoken. And the gift of tongues is the ability to speak that language without going through a normal process of learning the language. So as Christy and I went to Japan, we had vocabulary flashcards, we had cassette tapes back then. That's how old we are. Some of you will know what cassette tapes are. Uh, we had tutors, and we had conversational classes and textbooks and all that. We went through a process, and we were okay, mediocre, after a couple of years. That's not the gift of tongues. It's instantaneously, supernaturally, the ability to speak a language fluently, even if you don't understand what you're saying. And on the day of Pentecost, what happened was all the church was assembled. They'd been commanded by Jesus to wait until the gift was given from on high, pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So there on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, they're all assembled in one place, they're praying, and suddenly a sound like a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they're sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. And they all began to speak in other languages as the Spirit moved them or enabled them. Then uh, a huge crowd that was there in general in Jerusalem for the, for the feast uh, heard the sound and gathered around the place where they were. The apostles of the church goes flowing out into the streets and begins preaching the gospel. Powerfully. It's the start of the church age. Powerful. And what happened was Acts 2, 7 through 11. Uh, the people, utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So there's just a wide array of national origins. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So that's a little bit different. I think that they were speaking maybe Aramaic, their own native language, talking about the apostles. But everyone was hearing. It was like it's translated in air or in their brains so they could all hear them in their native language. It's incredible. Now, as the church spread geographically uh, and the gospel came frequently, if not every time, but frequently, when a new pocket of Gentiles in particular would hear the gospel and believe, the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a similar way and they, the believers, the new believers would begin speaking in tongues and the people would know uh, that the gospel had come, like uh, Cornelius' house, and we'll talk about that more in detail in a few minutes, but also in Ephesus. So there are examples of that. Now, here in Corinth, the church was mostly made up of Gentiles who had been rescued from paganism. They, Paul and his entourage came. They heard the gospel preached. They believed in Jesus. They crossed over from darkness to light, from death to life. They came in, they, and they were assembled together into that local church. And the Holy Spirit gave them spiritual gifts, variable gifts, as we discussed in 1 Corinthians 12. And some of them had the gift of tongues, of languages. They had that, that ability as part of the spiritual gift package. But they were using them chaotically. They were using them poorly. Paul wants to rein them in and help them to understand. What was God's purpose for giving them? Now we get to a very difficult, challenging quote from the Apostle Paul. All right? The quote from Isaiah. Paul lifts a quote from the prophet Isaiah. If you look at verse 21. In the law, Isaiah the prophet, in the law it is written, through men of strange tongues and through lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So Paul's use of this quote is not easy to understand. But let's soldier on and do the best we can to understand what he's lifting out of Isaiah and how he's applying it here. 
So we have to go back then in Isaiah's context. Isaiah was a prophet who lived about seven centuries before Jesus was born. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and about 15 years before Isaiah's prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that had gone immediately into idolatry and all that, and were corrupt really from the start and all the way through, were taken off into exile by the Assyrians. So they were gone because of their idolatry and their wickedness. God sent Isaiah as a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah to warn them that the same thing would happen to them if they didn't repent. And so he's speaking to them, Isaiah was, to his own people in the clear, simple message that God had given them, a clear warning that if they did not repent, judgment was going to come. However, the proud religious leaders of Isaiah's day mocked the word of God sent to them by the prophet Isaiah. They acted like he was speaking to babies, that they were far beyond the message that Isaiah was giving So in Isaiah 28, 9 and 10, they said, Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is, this is one translation, do and do, do and do, rule and rule, rule and rule, little here, little there. In the Hebrew, it's really interesting. It sounds like this. Like sing-songy baby talk. This is what Isaiah was doing. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. Or we would say, yada, 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 yada. That's all it is. They were mocking the clear, simple warning from God that if they did not repent, judgment was coming. They had no fear of the Lord or his word at all. Isaiah will later say in his prophecy, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being? This is the one I esteem. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. They were mocking it. He had spoken a clear message of warning to the leaders of Judah, but they threw it off. God was saying, I'm showing you a place of salvation. Isaiah 28, 12. This is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So God said, all right, then I will judge you. Isaiah 28, 11, Very well then, if that's how you're going to be. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. What does that mean? All right, you're mocking the clear word because it's so baby, babyish? All right, how about if I speak to you in a language you don't understand at all? What does that mean? It's a clear threat that the city of David, Jerusalem, would have... This capital city of the promised land, Gentile conquerors who would come and speak their native language in the Jewish capital city. God will speak in that way. What does that mean? Judgment. Invasion and judgment. It's the very thing that God had threatened in the song of Moses before they ever entered the promised land. Back in Deuteronomy 28, 49 and 50. This is what he said. He taught the Jews this song before they crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land, before the battle of Jericho. He said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to your nation. 
And so part of that song of Moses, it says, it's a prophecy, the Lord, this is Deuteronomy 28, 49 and 50, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. A fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. Well, in redemptive history, that would be the Babylonians who came and spoke Babel in the streets of Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground, destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. Jeremiah warned about this exact same thing in Jeremiah, 50, uh, Jeremiah 5, sorry, 15 through 17. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. With the sword they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. I'm going to speak to you by an invasion from a foreign land. So, now we'll go over to Corinthians. Paul's getting all that and bringing that into the gift of tongues. What is he saying? Tongues are a sign. He says it's a sign of warning to unbelievers that there is a supernatural being, a God in the heavens. And this almighty God has the power to invade your worlds and bring it to an end. Now, to unbelieving Jews in particular, they should have known this history, that there was a judgment coming on the city of Jerusalem, and it had yet to come in Paul's day, the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus predicted it. Not one stone will be left on another. It says in Luke 19, as Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, Luke 19, 43 and 44, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, that was in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Now, cessationists, people who believe that tongues and prophecy and other sign gifts have ended with the um, apostolic era, say that tongues were specifically assigned to the Jews that because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that, that Jerusalem would be destroyed in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave. And, going beyond that, once that destruction happened, you didn't need tongues anymore. That's part of the cessationist argument. That may well be. But let me say this. Tongues are not only a sign of impending judgment. They are that. Paul says they are. A sign for unbelievers. Repent while there's time. There is Almighty God. He is powerful. He can invade your world and bring it to an end. It is a sign. But there are other, there are other aspects too. It's a good thing. It's a sign, in some cases, to believers. For example, remember when Peter went contrary to Jewish custom and crossed the threshold into Cornelius' house. You remember that? Uh, Orchestrated in Acts chapter 10, and he goes there, and he preaches to Cornelius and his family and friends, and they're all there. Preaches the clear gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected and all that. He's preaching the gospel. Acts 10, 44 through 47. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. 
It was a huge moment. And later in the argument about circumcision, it was used. They said, look, the Holy Spirit came on them uncircumcised. They're justified believers, so how could we uh, withhold water baptism from them? They've already received the Spirit baptism. So it was a sign to the believing church that these Gentiles were believers. They're Christians. They'd receive the Holy Spirit. Tongues were also a sign of, of authority for apostles, marking out the apostles as different supernatural people. Paul says, look at verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And also he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. So the apostles speaking in tongues show that they had been filled with the Holy Spirit and they were spiritual leaders. Now, why uh, does Paul say they are a sign for unbelievers? Paul says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers, not for believers. He says that prophecy is for believers, not for unbelievers. But frankly, even that he's going to go against because later he's going to say, if prophesying is going on and an unbeliever comes in and hears, he's going to be cut to the heart and, and whatever. So there's benefit for the unbeliever with prophecy too. What does he mean here? Well, I think it's got to do with the theme of judgment. The theme of judgment that I've been laying before you from the book of Isaiah. God is powerful. He controls human history. He can raise up the Babylonians and move them as he sees fit. Then he can remove them 70 years later. He can do whatever he wants. He can raise up the Romans. Then he can conquer the Roman Empire with the gospel. He can do that. He can do anything. He is that powerful. And he will someday, the Bible reveals, end all of human history by another invasion from heaven. Jesus Christ is the head, at the head of a heavenly army. That day is coming. We don't know when. So therefore, all of us should understand the threat and the warning that all of this is. Judgment is coming. Judgment day is coming by a supernatural being who can invade history. And this supernatural tongues, this ability to speak fluently a language you've never learned, is a sign that such a divine being exists. So be warned and flee to Christ. This is the resting place. This is the place where the weary can rest. The, right, the, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are saved. They are kept safe. So run to Christ while there's time. That's how it's a sign for unbelievers. Now, uh, point three, the chaos of tongues versus the clarity of prophecy. Verse 23 to 25. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and he will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So Paul is giving kind of an extreme view of what could happen with this chaos. The first century church generally met in houses, so I don't know if there was this sense that everyone was all assembled together all at once, but imagine that they did. Everyone's together, and everyone with the gift of tongues was all using the gift of tongues at the exact same time, and no one was translating. That thing is just going on. Picture it in your mind. I've given you the word, chaos, utter chaos. That's what's going on. And then Paul says, imagine an unbeliever or a recent convert walking in and sees this going on, has no idea what's happening. 
And what is the conclusion of that outside observer coming in or that new convert? You're out of your minds. This is, ca- this is crazy. Conversely, if prophecy is going on, you have a very different outcome. The unbeliever would hear the incisive word of God. Like it says in Acts chapter 2. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. They're convicted of their sins. They know they need to flee to Christ. They understand what's happening. It's all clear because they get it. They hear the words and they're cut to the heart. For as it says in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's happening for that person. They're convicted. They're crushed. They are incited to flee to Christ for salvation. And they will fall down and say, surely God is in this place. That's what prophecy can do. Now, there's a wonderful example of this from church history, and that's the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. It's probably my favorite testimony that I've ever read in church histories. Uh, Spurgeon was a a prodigy, a spiritual prodigy, but as yet unconverted as a teenager. Very brilliant person, but he knew he was in an unconverted state, teenager. And he went from worship service to worship service to worship service trying to find someone who could tell him how to be saved. Well, one snowy day, he made his way to a primitive Methodist chapel. Very small assembly of people. God can do amazing things in small church services. And when he gets there, he finds out that the regular preacher couldn't make it. Praise God. Don't know who that guy is, but good thing. Because instead, he got a primitive Methodist lay preacher. And uh, this guy was not very trained, but not highly trained. Uh, Spurgeon says some funny, rather disparaging things about this guy. Um, But at any rate, this man did the best thing he could by choosing the right text. In the KJV, Isaiah 45, 22, this was the text he preached on. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. So this simple man ardently pressed the text home. Look unto me means look unto Christ by faith. See him by faith. Look unto me, he said, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Then, interestingly, this primitive Methodist preacher zeroes in on Spurgeon in particular. Fear not, all of you, I'm not going to do that to any of you this morning. But he zeroed in on him. Spurgeon wrote these words. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, said Spurgeon, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit of my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will be miserable, always miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Spurgeon wrote that, I didn't say it, young man, look to Jesus Christ, look, 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 you have nothing to do but look. I saw at once the way of salvation. 
I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I've been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I could have looked until I looked my eyes away. That is the look of faith. Seeing Christ dead for you. Seeing Christ risen for you. That justifies. And he was justified. Now, why do I cite all that? Well, something like that can happen anytime. Outsider comes in, hears the gospel. As long as the gospel is clearly preached, there's a chance something like that could happen every single time. Now, I believe that our church, if we are going to be healthy, should be aware of that happening. We should be aware that that could happen and ready for it every week. Now, for many years, American evangelicalism has had a movement within it called the seeker-sensitive church model. Seeker-sensitive. What this means, the basic theory is, that Sunday mornings should be geared to the unbeliever, especially the unbeliever that's open and amenable to Christianity, and everything should be done to make that individual feel comfortable, feel welcome, so that everything in it is intelligible to him or her. Everything's geared to the unbeliever to win that person to basic faith in Christ. Well, the seeker-sensitive model has had significant flaws with it. Um, And there's been a lot said against it. I do believe that Sunday morning is primarily for believers. For the members of this church and for believers. So that you would be fed and strengthened and brought to full maturity through the ministry of the Word of God. So I do not embrace the seeker-sensitive model. But I do think that the church should be seeker-sensible aware that this could happen and ready for it. And one of my commitments is to be certain that the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected is proclaimed plainly and clearly at some point in every service. Pie chart doesn't need to take the whole time unless it is the text. But every single week, a person like that can hear the answer to the simple question, what must I do to be saved? And that I need to be saved. I'm a sinner. I'm under judgment. I cannot stand on my own. I must have a Savior. And so that's what we seek to do. Fourth point. The proper use of tongues, orderly procedures. So now we get to the rules and regulations. Verse 26 through 28. What shall we say, brothers? Uh, When you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So Paul gets very orderly, very practical here. Concept here is the people of God come not as an audience but as active participants. Now this concept has played out differently in different faith uh, traditions and denominations. All right, for example, the Quakers and the Brethren have no ordained pastors that prepare any messages. Everyone just sits in a room, and as the Spirit moves, then people say things and do things. Everyone is part of of the service. On the other end of the scale, other denominations uh, or religions, even Roman Catholicism, have a very, very strict order of service. The laity has no control and very little participation. And there's, they wear different robes or clothing, the priests or Roman Catholic priests. There's even a, a, a barrier, a wall between the priests and the people. Um, in between our standard evangelical Sunday morning worship services that have an order of service and, and individuals generally just do 
you know, the scripture readings and the singing and all that and do not come actively expecting to participate. Probably for us at FBC Durham, you would think of this more in terms of the whole Sunday and home fellowships where you were to go to someone's home and you would expect to come and make a contribution, that we would teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and that someone would say, hey, I, I listened to this song this week. This, this really encouraged me. Oh, let's hear it. That kind of more informality can happen during home fellowships, etc. When I was in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, you're, you're basically there all day. You're there all day for church. They have meals together. They're just together. And so you could well imagine somebody, everybody would come with this or that. Paul doesn't give a complete list here of things that could be part of the Sunday morning service. You know, he, he talks about a, a revelation or um, different other things. But there are other aspects of uh, things that are not mentioned, such as public reading of Scripture. He doesn't mention that. Preaching isn't mentioned. Teaching isn't mentioned. Corporate prayer isn't mentioned. The Lord's Supper or baptism are not mentioned. So this is not an exhaustive list. But the idea is everybody comes expecting to participate in some way. However, the purpose of everything is orderly edification. Verse 26, all of this must be done for the strengthening of the church. Then he gives four rules for the use of tongues. Now, you may ask, why are you giving the four rules for the use of tongues? Are we going to use tongues? Well, I can tell you this. We're not going to use tongues that, in a way that doesn't follow these four rules. And if you're wondering whether the FBC Durham elders are ready to move toward tongues of prophecy, listen to last week's sermon. Uh, there are definitely filters that individuals have to go through before we ever thought that that would be part of our Sunday morning worship. But what are the four rules he gives here? Well, first, number one, only two or three persons should speak. So there could be 50, 60, 100 people with the gift of tongues. Only two or three are going to use the gift on a Sunday morning. That's what he's saying, just two or three. Number two, they should speak in order one after the other, not all at the same time. He's going to say the same thing with prophecy. He's going to say that the gift of the prophet is subject to the control of the prophet. You can't say there's nothing I could do. The spirit overwhelmed me and there's nothing I could do. I could, he said that's not true. So it has to be, you know, one after the other. I was at an outreach in Salem, Massachusetts. And I went with a uh, Pentecostal church to reach out to the witches there. Uh, and there are witches there, about 3,000 registered witches in Salem. So as part of this outreach, never been in a Pentecostal service before. And at some point we started praying for the outreach we were about to do. Wow. Interesting experience. Everyone began praying in tongues all at once. I'd never experienced that in my life. So I prayed and asked the Lord if it would be okay for me to pray in English because it's the only language that I know. And so I went ahead and had my prayer time, but it was just everyone at the same time. This says uh, one after the other. Thirdly, what they say must be interpreted. If it's going to be said in the context of a public service, there must be someone there to interpret and then fourth, if there is no interpreter, they should not speak. They should keep silent in the church and speak to themselves and God. These are the four rules. At any rate, the clear implication, the use of tongues is subject to the control of the people. He's going to say that next, next, uh, in the next passage, verse 31, 32. You can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged for the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. All right, applications. The primary goal every single week should be the clear proclamation of the word of God for the edification of the church. And I think for me, as a top priority of that would be the clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so lost people can find forgiveness of sins. And I'm not assuming that every one of you that's sitting here in this sanctuary here has most certainly 
been born again before you came here, but you've heard the gospel today. You've had the chance to hear what Spurgeon heard that converted him. You had the chance to look to Jesus dead on the cross for a sinner like you or like me. You've, had, you've heard clearly that Christ was raised from the dead. All you need is there. Repent and believe while there's time. There is a supernatural being who threatens us with eternal condemnation if we will not repent and follow him. And now is the day of salvation. This is the top priority. Secondly, let's use our spiritual gifts to edify the body. You have a spiritual gift package. Are you using it? Now, I know things are different now with COVID-19. I understand it. But be creative. Find ways to use your gifts. And understand your gift package was given to edify, to build up the body of Christ. So edify. And concerning tongues itself, as we mentioned last week, there's so much debate and discussion about whether that, this gift continues to this day. Um, we're in, I am, for myself, speaking for myself, the, uh, uh, among those who are uh, cautious, uh, perhaps skeptical, uh, wanting to see, I don't find cessationism in the New Testament. But I would say on behalf of the elders, if this gift and if prophecy were ever to be used on Sunday morning, it must follow certain patterns, and the patterns were clearly laid out in this text today. That's our desire. Overall, Sunday morning should be about the edification of the body of Christ through the clear, orderly, logical, spirit-filled ministry of the Word of God. That's our goal. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had in your Word. Thank you for the things we can learn from it. Uh, There's so much richness here, so much power, so much insight. So, Father, I pray that you would strengthen each one of us. Help us to realize, Lord, that you are mighty and a powerful being. That you are sitting on a heavenly throne. And that from heaven you will come to earth to judge the earth. And Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. Help us while there's time to flee to Christ and to trust in him. Help us who have already fled to Christ to be faithful to share the gospel in these times of of doubt and, and sadness and death and trouble. Which is in every generation. But this is our time. Help us to be clear with the gospel and be bold. As you've commanded in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.